Hey everyone, this is Mike from You'll Probably Agree. Today, uh, I had a little bit of trouble booking a guest because, well, there's COVID and everyone's been busy, you know, starting the new year and everything. And, of course, the world's practically on fire. So, uh, for a little bit of a change of events, I spoke to someone who is an American history major uh, relating to the movie Lincoln and its relevance today, and that major was, as a matter of fact, my mother. Uh, someone, one of the very few people I've been able to go and see during this pandemic. Uh, thank God that uh, she and my father and my sister have been around, so I have some human beings I could see in person where we know where we've been and we know that we're safe, and... Uh, I want to just thank her for coming on the show. I mean, I have in person anyways multiple times. And it's good to have a place to go to other than my little cramped apartment to have someone to talk to. But yes, we talk about Lincoln, a movie that whose relevance, you know, uh, is certainly uh, alive today in a multitude of factors. Uh, I'd like to thank my sponsor, Galway Bay, located at 500 West Diversity Parkway in Chicago, Illinois. Obviously, uh, we can't go to a bar, which is, uh, we have no idea when we're ever going to go back to a bar. Um, but in the meantime, uh, you can buy a lot of their products on dualdrinkware.com. Their page is uh, going to be linked on there. You can buy glasses. You can buy T-shirts, you can buy coasters, a whole lot of things that are very well produced, actually. It's not like cheaply made stuff. It's it's really high quality, actually. I have a bunch of them in my house. But having said that, I'm going to start the episode. Thanks a lot. Greer stepped out upon the world stage now with the fate of human dignity in our hands. Blood's been spilled to afford us this moment now, now, now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a uh, particularly different episode of You'll Probably Agree. Uh, with uh, COVID and uh, trying to book people on all the time, I had a little bit of difficulty grabbing guests on time. But luckily, uh, during this particular moment of uh, certain extremities, uh, I guess you could say, I looked back on a man at a movie about a man who found a country in absolute turmoil and that was Steven Spielberg's Lincoln and uh, I'm going well who can I grab for a guest and the only people I've been able to see during this pandemic when I'm not in my apartment and somewhere I can go when I'm not losing my mind you know but by being in absolute isolation away from other people are my parents, and luckily, my mother is a U.S. history major from Northwestern University who turned a business teacher in a high school. Uh, but I, I remember I ended up turning to Lincoln because I thought of how a country was an uh, absolute disarray at that time and how they were able to recover from it under the guidance of uh, one man. So, uh, Bob, thank you for coming on. <laughs> uh, Ms. Anna Crowley, uh, her her actual name. Hi. Uh, 
So, um, I guess as a history major, uh, from through American history, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What 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 points of relevance words relevance uh, did you find between 1865? You know the final year of Abraham Lincoln, which is when this takes place, as the whole movie revolves around the the uh, passing of the 13th Amendment, also known as the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, to today? Well, there's several points. You know, some of them you already brought up. Um, extreme turmoil um, with the Civil War going on, the burden that it put on Abraham Lincoln and the country at the time, um, his trying to pass uh, the... Um, Emancipation Proclamation, was it at the time? Yes, yeah, so the 13th Amendment. 13th yeah. Amendment. And at the same time, trying to speak with the Confederate States to try to bring some kind of an end to the war, which had been a substantial burden on, mm-hmm. you know, what was going on. Um, there's an awful, awful lot of relevance there to what's going on today. Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I believe they had said... And this is something that has been quoted um, on the news cable channels, um, that 600,000 people died during the Civil War. Um, Today with COVID, uh, we are in the hundreds of thousands already. We're around 300,000. That's what I thought. Or something like that. So you had a tremendous amount of loss of life in both of these eras. Um, at the same time, there was, of course, tremendous turmoil due to the fact that you were, you were facing some very basic human rights questions Mm -hmm. at that time. Um, because the, you know, the South had basically, um, proliferated, uh, proliferated itself on you know, the use of slavery to create a very powerful, wealthy area. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was completely antithetical to what America was actually founded on. Not that they looked at their slaves as equals, um, but that it it was just morally incorrect and was in conflict with what the North felt should be going on. During this conflict, you have my Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is a massive movement. We're still dealing with some of these questions. I can't believe after this much time, past the Civil War, we're still dealing with some of these problems. All right, now, obviously, <clears throat> everyone has the right to vote these days. You know, the Civil Rights Movement passed that. Um, but you still have inequalities that we are still grappling with today, mm-hmm. which is incredible. Um, and another oddity that I can bring up that I just heard about today is the last time the Capitol building was stormed was in 1861. Yeah. And there's a plaque on the wall where just last night they were saying on the news, National Guardsmen were sleeping on the floor, which was the last time that that any type of soldiers were sleeping on the floor of the Capitol building. 
Now that's some very weird coincidences. It is, and the, the uh, most interesting thing about that is uh, when I'm, I'm trying to think how they would spin their own narratives. The uh, South uh, compared to the North, you know, when they when they, for instance, today, so many have. There's about 45 percent of uh, not Americans, but people who are on the uh, in the United States who are on the protesters' side, they'll they'll call Black Lives Matter a violent protest. They'll uh, try to degrade it any way they can, really, because it's just about race. They don't want the people who look different than them to uh, really have any word or any rights of their own and they view them as subhuman and now if we look at how they defended the capital when our you know soon to be outgoing presidents although it still doesn't feel like a reality until he's finally gone uh left he 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 you know shot tear gas at a bunch of peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters so he could hold a Bible upside down in front of a church for a photo op. And the guards that they had at the White House at that time were in full military gear. And and on the day they stormed the Capitol, where, which the president encouraged himself, they were barely even... Armed, and I'm just thinking, well, what kind of headlines did they have back then, or which way would they spin the narrative? And it doesn't even have to be through the press. And where, you know, they they were trying to have both sides have their say when really one side was absolutely insane and the other one wasn't. I don't know how they could spin it. I have no answer for that. I do know that the South, in the South, they had a completely different view of their slaves and how they use them on their plantations and what their rights of those people were, even though they had been enslaved and brought over here and uh, had worked for, you know, a few hundred, a couple hundred years, you know, on what a founding of the country in 1700 and something yet. 1776. Yeah. But, but um, very recently I had read, that in Charleston and other areas, slavery began somewhere in the 1600s, which meant that it could have been more than 150 some years that they had had slaves in these areas. Their their view of of the people they enslaved was ex- completely different to what was being thought of in the North. Um, the problem is. In both cases, back then and now, you're still talking about racism. You're still dealing with racism in different ways, but the same subject, which is, to me, almost horrifying that we're still doing this in this day and age. As far as how they, how the police um, reacted to both of these groups with Black Lives Matter, they acted like they were in full riot gear, like they were ready to take on some kind of storming, you know, uh, 
army that was coming at them, which these people did not do, okay? Yet, when, they, when the Capitol was stormed last week, you have some guys sitting there taking selfies with people. I mean, are we kidding? Well, it, is, you know, are we ever going to get over this stuff? I, well, I cannot the, understand the, the, why we're still grappling with these problems. The similarity that I seem to find is that if you had any slaves during that time, you know, during the 1860s, uh, you know, I'm going to guess if, uh, 1865, I, I'm not sure how far into Lincoln's second term he was in because he had two terms, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, how far he was into that term. But if, if if the slaves tried to have a protest, I think they treat them the same way. Well, probably worse than they do Much worse. today. But we still sort of do that. You know, we still treat those who are of not are of not white privilege, like honestly myself, very differently. It's like there's always been two Americas. Mm-hmm. There always have been, and. According to the people who stormed the Capitol or the fringes of the Republican Party, that that Trump has uh, definitely brought more into the fold and and uh, emboldened, there always should be. Mm-hmm. We're never going to change. And um, at some point, for the for the country to move forward, we got to stop all this stuff. We are becoming a multi-ethnic country. It's no longer just about Black Lives Matter, which is, of course, extremely important because they especially, if I were the blacks, I'd be much more upset than than they show them as they are because, quite honestly, they've been here for hundreds of years. Even our family hasn't been around here that long. They have more rights than a lot of people do. But you now have a large Hispanic population, Asian, you know, Indian. You know, you're getting multi-ethnicities at this point you know and everybody has to be accepted on an equal footing this you know it's ridiculous to think that a country fought a a horrible war like this back in the middle 1800s and we're still talking about this stuff i i'm not sure how how i how i can speak for how angry uh, black citizens in America should be. That's that's not up to me. Uh, but I understand your point. Um, uh, if Lincoln wasn't exactly a, a saint in the film, although they sort of uh, depicted him through a lens of saintlyhood, if that is such a word, uh, he did buy congressmen their votes and do these sort of these you know, sort of dirty politics things. Uh, what were your thoughts on that sort of depiction in the movie? Well, having been from Chicago, I hate to say it, we've always had kind of a dirty politics type of um, approach to how we govern. I don't think that um, politics is that clean no matter how you try and do it. Mm-hmm. You try to be as ethical as you can, but if you need some type of, you know, you know, politics where you have, how can I put it, a give and take in order to get things done, so be it, all mm-hmm. right? What I think Lincoln had back then that the other people he was dealing with did not in that movie and which frustrated him so tremendously is that he had vision. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. He could see that the country had to move forward, that in order for it to keep growing and establishing itself as a, as a very wealthy country that would step onto the world stage at some point, it had to deal with these horrible problems it had, it was, had within itself. And he was trying to make this clear to these other congressmen and the, uh, the other people who surrounded him that couldn't see it. He couldn't, they could not see into the future as he could that this country would continue to grow and become very important and that it had to deal with its own inner politics before it could keep going forward. Well, the whole movie was based around Doris Kearns' uh, book called Team of Rivals, which was sort of about uh, how people in uh, or the members of Lincoln's cabinet would often just argue with him, you know, and and maybe to the point of extremity. Uh, but it, when she was writing that book, she. Uh, Spielberg told her he was making a movie about Lincoln and she told him about the book and decided to base the movie on that. Uh, I remember there was a certain line in the in the film where uh, Lincoln turned to his secretary of state, William uh, Seward, uh, played by David Strahan, and he said, if you could look into the sands of time and see what I see, you know, you'd essentially um, understand what I'm trying to do. And I think that was the thing. He was a man ahead of the other men in the room. And essentially the, the point of Goodwin's uh, book that was adapted by Spielberg, and I'm just speaking purely of the adaptation, is that people couldn't see far in advance how things were going to appear through the looking glass until... But, but Lincoln could himself... Mm -hmm. um, and that was a quality in a president, in all of our best presidents, as this movie depicted, that one must have is you must be perfectly calm amidst absolute chaos, which was what Lincoln seemed to maintain and to hold, and that's how he was able to fix, help heal a country that was even in worse shape than it is now. Uh, during the Civil War, I looked it up, uh, 620,000 Americans died. Uh, during COVID, we're, we're at half that number already, uh, with maybe more to come. Um, well, it is going to be more. When we think about... Uh, Lincoln and how he how, how was he able to see beyond everyone else in his cabinet how was he so wise beyond everyone else's years I suppose beyond his own years even well um, when I teach business I, I teach um, a, a certain chapter called leadership mm -hmm. it's one thing to be a good manager it's a very different thing to be a leader. Mm -hmm. Leaders are people with vision. Leaders can see beyond. They can, they can, as you say, sift through the sands of time and see where things are going when others cannot. And um, 
that's what Lincoln could do. I think great presidents have that type of vision where they know where they want to steer a country. Um, that's why, um, like Joyce Kearns Goodwin said, mm -hmm. she wrote about a book with Lincoln about a team of rivals. Good presidents surround themselves with not only excellent people, but they allow these people to all voice their own opinions, and they sit back and listen. I heard that about President Clinton that I think was extremely intelligent. I think people forget that. Mm -hmm. President Obama. Um, I'm going to guess JFK, who had the tennis court cabinet, another famous, a famously intelligent cabinet, did the same thing. And they sit back and they listen to all the opinions, gather all the information, and then come to conclusions. They don't try to push their own vision only on people. Lincoln did the same thing. But they have the gift of being able to see where they would like to see the country going in the future that will be beneficial to the country on a larger stage. Not everybody has that ability. Mm -hmm. I teach it in school uh, in regards to major companies or corporations and their leadership. But the same can be said politically. Yeah. I'm not, uh, do you think Joe Biden has that sort of vision? I think, I think Biden does. I think one of the great things with Biden is that he was a vice president with Obama. Many people didn't know that he actually headed the Ebola response. He was a senator for many years, and he knows the government in and out. Mm -hmm. So as James Clyburn said when he uh, nominated him, this is the man you need at this time. You need someone who really knows the government, who can get things done extremely quickly because we're in a mess. We are just a mess. How do you think he can bring the country together that's on the verge of another civil war? I think that if he is politically savvy and knows as much as I think he does about the government, he can be effective to get things done very quickly. I think that will help heal a lot. If people feel that they can roll out the, the pandemic response quickly, that they can get vaccinations done quickly, and that we can inoculate enough people, and even the rollout of the vaccine has been a damn mess. I mean, I haven't seen anywhere where this guy excelled in anything. I think they denied some the rollout of some vaccinations back in July or something like that. Well, that was one of the big boo-boos. There's all kinds of big mistakes made here. Yeah, they passed on getting millions of, uh, you know, uh, uh, dosages of the vaccine where other countries got ahead of us with companies that were in the United States actually making this stuff. I mean, how, how do you do this? Anyway, if Biden can get that done and people can get out, they will begin to heal. People will be, feel better. They'll go back to a more and more normal life. If he can get the country better on track towards opening businesses, getting uh, uh, subsidies to companies that, were, that had to shut down, uh, help with student loan debt, get more money into, into people's pockets uh, in order to help us through the worst times of this pandemic until people can get back to work. 
all this will help to heal things. This is the mm -hmm. kind of stuff that you need to do that this, this president and his whole administration just completely failed at. Just forget mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Um, why do you think... Um, let's talk a little bit about... This wasn't on my list of questions here, but let's talk a little bit about Daniel Day-Lewis's uh, performance as Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I, for one, I think was a little taken back by the particular voice that he used initially because everyone imagines Abraham Lincoln with this big baritone four score and seven years ago sort of voice. But I suppose through historical records, uh, they said that his voice was actually a bit frail and, and, and light despite his, uh, you know, his enormous stature standing at six, four, uh, other than that, I mean, is Daniel Day Lewis, so <laughs> I, he can do no wrong, and you know, in my opinion. Uh, but what do you? I remember halfway through watching this, you're going, his performance seems odd to me. Like, uh, what did you mean when you were saying that? Well, the high pitched voice would be one of them. I never realized, and maybe he, you know, knowing Daniel Day Lewis, I understand that he really takes on the character. I'm guessing that he really did some research into Lincoln. I never realized he had a frail voice. Maybe he did. You know, I don't know. But um, because I'm used to the different portrayal that you're talking about, large stature, booming voice, you know, doing these incredible speeches that we still, you know, recite today, mm -hmm. you know, it didn't look like the right portrayal for me. But possibly... That was the man. Now, when mm -hmm. he was talking to his cabinet and trying to put together votes, you know, to pass the uh, 13th Amendment. Yeah. Okay. Um, that I saw as much more believable where he's wrangling to get the votes. He's trying to get things through. He's trying to explain why. Um, it was on that larger stage, as you're saying, of giving a, a speech, you know, or... Um, you know, these, these oratorical type of uh, uh, speeches that he gave on specific subjects, that's where I I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't used to that type of portrayal. Yeah. But maybe he's right. Well, a lot know? of people reacted the same way, like when that trailer initially came. I remember I was in Los Angeles at that time, and the comments section on the YouTube was like, you know, why does he sound like that? But then when I read how he did the research which Spielberg saved him in an interview about it. Like, they asked him particularly about that question, and Daniel Day-Lewis, like, had some kind of answer that wasn't real. It was like a non-answer, and I think Spielberg addressed it himself during that Q&A. That, that was something I remembered particularly when the film came out. But, uh, I mean, for me, I think he captured a lot of the grief uh, through his mannerisms, through, you know, how slow he moved, you know, that, that Lincoln had because uh his childhood wasn't necessarily easy his uh i i think his mother died at a very young age i think it was giving birth to one of his siblings mm -hmm. and then his sister had to raise him when she was like 11 years old and she died uh with a stillborn child. Mm. Yeah. 
So common in those days. Yeah, and I, the reason Lincoln moved to Illinois was because his brother, who basically like was living, uh, you know, was sort of the man of the house at that time with him, decided to move there after he lost some land that he uh, lost in court, essentially. Uh, some, yeah, some, some farm yet or something. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, they, they, yeah, they, they went to Illinois and I think they went into an area where, and I could be wrong about this cause I'm no history major, but, uh, he, they didn't have slavery where he was. And I think after witnessing such tremendous loss in his life, you know, it develops a sense of empathy and character in a man that you just see uh, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis portray just by how soft Lincoln was in his body movements and his voice and everything. You know, when he's speaking to those soldiers from the South at the very beginning of the movie where they're uh, reciting his Gettysburg address to him, uh, you know, he, he's talking to them like men, but you know, he has this very sort of calming presence about him, almost like a like a therapist in a way. You know, that, that sort of draws you into him. It kinda of makes you lean forward when he's talking and you want to hear what he's saying. And I thought that was particularly striking and unexpected, you know, from Daniel Day Lewis, uh, in this movie. You know, everyone thought immediately, Oh, is this is gonna be exactly about exactly as they thought but it was a little different but in a very welcoming way which is what gave him his third academy award um i'm trying to remember how many oscars of three oscars uh, how many actors have three oscars it's him meryl streep uh jack nicholson have three i don't know but he's within those very rare ranks in hollywood um, That's rare. Yeah. The the portrayal to me was a man who was greatly burdened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That he had taken on a huge task that other people would not want to do. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to get through it the best that he could. Um, and um, I think you're right. He was probably a very compassionate person. He'd been through some personal, it sounds like quite a bit of personal uh, uh, burdens himself th- with his family. And uh, the North, of course, where he was in Illinois, was definitely a free state. Um, and he acquired quite a bit of empathy, I guess, through his own life experience yeah. that he later turned around and used in his presidency. Well, he, he lost his youngest son. Uh, yeah. How, how, how did they lose him? I don't remember. Okay. I do not remember. But you can see that Mary Todd Lincoln was really struggling mm-hmm. after having uh, lost that younger child and was extremely protective of her older son not going to war because yeah. you could see that she was definitely what you would call frail, that she, um, uh, in her personality, uh, she had regained some strength in the movie, you know, by the time this movie is done or this time period, but that sh- she had had a tremendous problem getting over the child's birth and mentally was not 
doing that well at certain times. Yeah, and I mean, all they they had, I guess, uh, in the end, uh, Robert Lincoln did send her to the insane asylum, you know, and there is that fight between uh, Abraham and Mary Todd where they're screaming over her sanity and how, you know, sending Robert off to war is the wrong decision and... You know, he's just keeping him because he doesn't want her to go mad, you know. And, of course, that that was where they did show Lincoln not as a perfect guy because he was very emotionally distant from what I could gather from that film with Robert. But with Tad, you know, his, his younger son, nine, ten-year-old, he was extremely welcoming and kind to him, almost like a grandfather. Like he was 56 at the time, and the kid was, like, 10, so... Yeah. yeah. So he was like, what, 46 when he had him? Yeah, so, yeah. That, and it, <clears throat> those ages at that time were probably around the time that people would, you know, they only lived till who knows what, their 50s at that age. You know, yeah, life his, expectancy went up very slowly in America. Abraham's mother died of something called like milk sickness or something like that. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you were 56 back then, you looked like you were 86. Right, exactly. You, know, you, you you looked horrible. So to have a young kid around, that's pretty hard at that age. And so he would act almost, to me, kind of, you're right, he acted like a grandfather. Yeah. He hadn't thought about it, but you're right. Like, let me show you the little pictures again. And let me, okay. And, you know, Robert Ty would come home and he's like, you're not going to war. I don't care. You know, he, like, he, he was very kind of harsh with him like kind of like the stereotypical image of the tough father in a way yeah um, so i did appreciate that they didn't just show him as you know like saint lincoln or something like that you know and so uh, at least they did show a human portrayal which i i like what because something that annoys me a lot of autobiographies is when they show someone as this perfect heavenly image which you know that's not a human being. That's no. just that's just propaganda. At that no, point. true. Um, so if you think if Lincoln were around today, what would he think of this this this, this president, the, no. the the state of the the <laughs> nation today? Yeah, he'd think we're a mess. <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what he'd do. He'd probably he'd make a speech. He's just a mess. He wouldn't even understand probably... his Republican Party. That's for sure. Well, that's what I'm. The funniest <laughs> thing is, back then, the Democrats were the crazy ones back oh, yeah. then. They, yeah, they, they were the Jackie Earl Haley Confederate characters that you saw in the movie. And now, you know, it's... it's Completely a, flipped. Yeah, it's, it's a complete opposite. They're, yeah. yeah. Now, we're, we're the, the, the Republicans, not we. I'm not... A, uh, they're the ones who are... Uh, absolute crackpots. Uh, are they as bad as the 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 the, the Confederates? I, I don't think so. I hope not. Uh, but I mean that they're not far from them. Uh, and that's not every single person who's on Team Red. Okay, we're not saying if you're a Republican, don't listen to this podcast. We're not saying that. I have plenty of Republican friends who hates Donald Trump. It's just people who are in that cult or yeah. who we're talking about. And there's a lot of people in Congress who are like that, 
who decided to still challenge the election of Joe Biden during what is otherwise a completely normal procedure because they want to gain political points, for which I'm not sure if it'll work out in the long run, but I can't see through the sands of time like Lincoln did. So I don't know. I don't know what Lincoln would think. First of all, he would... He wouldn't even recognize the party that he's from because the parties have flipped. That happened, of course, during the FDR era mm-hmm. and was completed with LBJ when he passed civil rights. Then the then the uh, Democratic South completely left the party and became Republicans, and the Democratic Party became the party that we know now. Um, I think he'd be horrified. He tried to deal with slavery back in the... 1860s and what you're dealing with here is still racism in this country i think he would think that we're insane that we haven't figured some of this out at this point mm-hmm. that was one of the things he was trying to overcome you know at least initially and then figure out what to do afterwards um and we're still grappling like i said with this even to this day um what he would probably say is that he did try to deal with this a long time ago. And what are we doing? Yeah. Why haven't we gotten our act together by now? And with the um, progress that the country has made, you know, the fact that we're, you know, in the next millennia, um, in the second decade of the next millennia, um, that we should have figured things out by now. We've taken far too long with all of this. And the country should have much moved much further ahead than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do, what do you think about the use of dramatic license in this film? Because it, it, seem, it seems like they... Like in the, I, I know one thing for a fact in the movie, uh, the, but I won't reveal it until later. Uh, when the House of Representatives were debating and voting over the the passage of the 13th Amendment, could, could you believe any of these guys were saying the things that they did to each other in the House? Because if we thought it was heated today in the House, these guys were shouting each other. They were saying they were below uh, human life, that they were subhuman, that Thaddeus Stevens would uh, play by Tommy Lee Jones would step over Pendleton like he's a reptile with his boot. Do you think they went a little far with the dramatic license there, or do you think it was effective? It probably had some dramatic license, but I have always heard, historically speaking, that the House was always the more more raucous of the two um, houses of the Congress. The Senate was always the more gentlemanly, uh, the more or more etiquette type of group, and the House was always kind of a rowdier bunch. Mm-hmm. Now, were they as cuckoo as you know as they portrayed them um, in the movie? I don't know, but I do think that they were kind of a kind of a tough crazy bunch yes it's funny a lot of things Sadia Stevens had said of that movie he actually did say in real life wow uh, yeah but when it came to voting for the amendment in the movie they didn't they didn't have this big scene where they were saying saying I or nay they just wrote down their vote and handed it in the front 
Oh, I believe that. Yeah, so that that whole scene never happened. You it know, was a good that, scene, though. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was the best scene, though. You know, the, I mean, that's where it went kind of full Hollywood. But oh, but it was it was the best scene in the movie, so I'll give it that. You know, you, you almost had to have that. Um, so, having said all this, uh, this is uh, probably the last Steven Spielberg movie that I saw that I thoroughly enjoyed. I think he made like Bridge of Spies and he made The Post, but I don't really remember much from those movies at all. I think uh, Lincoln really stood out particularly for Daniel Day-Lewis's performance and also the supporting cast. Like that, The great thing about that movie is the whole cast is fantastic. Tommy Lee Jones as Thaddeus Stevens really stands out. They're uh, a good cast. A mm-hmm. lot of famous people in there. Did you have any particular favorites? Yeah, and I keep forgetting his name. David Strahan? Not Strahan, no. Uh, who did he play? He played one of the guys that was uh, acquiring the votes. James Spader? I like Spader. I basically like Spader as an actor. Is it I thought he did a Stargate? really good job at this one. <laughs> is, it, is it because he's in Stargate and anything with the word star in front of it? I, I like him on the blacklist on TV. The way he, you know, he plays a kind of smooth, really... A uh, dangerous kind of guy. I liked him in Stargate, uh, but I liked the way he portrayed, um, you know, obviously some aide or assistant that was trying to get the votes for Lincoln and would do whatever it took to get them. Very believable kind of person for that day and age to me. Yeah. Did, did they need to include Lincoln's assassination at the end of the film? It felt, I don't it know. It felt like it could have ended when they passed the amendment. That's what I thought. And then it just kind of kept going. I and think then, they were trying to make a dramatic... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, you off there. Uh, I, I think they were trying to make um, a uh, uh, some type of a dramatic uh, comment by doing the statement, that in other words the they're statement. trying to say like this is the end of decency or like not that but no this is the transition to it what are they trying to say i think at the end they said something like now he belongs to the ages meaning mm-hmm. they're reflecting back almost immediately at his death and saying this will go down as a very famous president mm-hmm. this is a man who tried to steer the course of a nation so how do we steer the course of the nation now beyond just healing the pandemic? Because there's, there's problems beyond that. I think that if Biden would go down as a great president, that's what he's going to do. He is going to right a lot of wrongs, things that have not been taken care of or began and were not finished in the Obama administration to assist certain groups of people to make progress. Well, There's I th- a lot of stuff to be done. I think the best thing he could do is tone down the rhetoric. That would help. Well, <laughs> the man just is. That's why when they had those debates, there was such a stark difference between him and with Trump. The man is a professional politician. Well, the first debate was an absolute oh, just train a, wreck. Just that a travesty. Little, it was exactly what everyone predicted it would be. A mess. Complete mess. Okay? Um 
it was bad enough with him dancing around behind uh, Hillary Clinton in the first ones. Uh, but when he had another guy on the stage, it's like he completely lost his nut. Uh, I don't understand what was going on with that guy, but Biden is a professional politician. He's been around for forever. And they began in the Obama administration certain things like the Affordable Care Act that I think need to be expanded on. They need to help for student uh, loan debt. There's, I mean, there's major things to be done. There really are, mm -hmm. you know, uh, assistance to businesses to uh, keep the economy going because most people don't understand. And one of the things that I do teach in business is that America is a superpower, but we're not just a superpower for, our wor or for ourselves. We help the whole world economy. Mm -hmm. If America doesn't do well, the rest of the world doesn't do well. They say if America catches a cold, if America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. Well, that's exactly what happened with COVID, because we we, we didn't pay close enough attention to China because we disassembled the global pandemic office and rehired people who worked there. That's another one. Uh, we you know we ended up letting this thing spread throughout the globe. Yep. You know we're supposed to be in charge of this, and we didn't do anything. No, completely dropped the ball. Um, total uh, uh, lack of um, leadership. Leadership, right? But America has to get their act back together because we're the ones that really help everybody else. I don't think a lot of people understand what that means. So, in order for the rest of the world to stay in fairly decent shape, America's got to get their act together. Well, how are we going to bridge the divide between the cultist extremists and people who are right wing but not quite like that and people who are left wing? And how are we going to have people not be divided into sections like we are now and, and, and bring some sort of unity, not, not the propagandist unity that the Ted Cruz's of the world are calling for right now because someone was you know, bashing in his door, although he was still voting to, 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 to oppose the vote for Biden. But how do we bridge the divide between a, a, a country that essentially has gone through a civil war now with this whole pandemic? Because one thing that, the, you know, 2020 taught us is that if we're in the middle of, of an enormous catastrophe, we're going to tear each other apart. The Joker in the Dark Knight was right. When the chips are down, these civilized people will eat each other. Well, and a lot of them did. Um, I think that um, they're talking about on cable news, <clears throat> and I'm not sure if this will happen or not. You might get a split of the Republican Party. There is obviously still a grouping of Republicans that are what you would call moderate Republicans, who are the actual older party, who are fiscal conservatives. They're not all the rest of this crazy stuff. Now, are, we ta are you talking about the lawmakers? Are you talking about politicians or, or the people, like regular everyday Joes? I think both. You've okay. got both. And the fringes, they're saying, may have to cut off and become their own party, Whereas the establishment Republican Party, who, you know, uh, 
who have been there for forever um, regroup um, and stay a Republican Party and continue, and they'll they'll have to work with the um, middle of the road Democrats, or as they're called, conservatives. Yeah. Okay, and they're not too far off from each other. Mm-hmm. Those groups. All right, they could work together, um, but the radical fringe. I don't know where they're going. I really don't. To hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To hell. Um, but. Um, you know, these the, the lawmakers themselves are going to have to figure out who they want in their party and who they don't, you know, and, and they're, they're going to have to go forward with that and determine, uh, you know, which way their party wants to go. The Democrats, yeah, they know what they're doing. They've got their party together, all right? Uh, but the Republicans have a lot of questions ahead of them. Um, and... Uh, I feel that um, uh, for the Republican Party, they're going to have to get their act together, and whatever part is going to stay the conservative part that was always around is going to have to, they're, they're going to have to keep their act together to keep the party together. I have heard in the last few days that major corporations that have always uh, supported the Republican Party are walking away. Mm-hmm. They they can't afford that. Well, no major party can afford that. Twitter, Amazon, Facebook—they all jumped off the sinking ship now. No, not that. I'm talking about a whole listing of major American corporations. Yeah, like Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah, you're Exxon, talking Mobile, big maybe. ones, right? They're, they they will uh, not Exxon. <laughs> they will not support. Any of these people that they think in any way were um, affiliated with what was happening here. Mm-hmm. So they've got to watch it because, yeah, they can't afford that. Everybody needs you know, a certain amount of money to be able to uh, uh, launch campaigns and things like that. And, and you're getting to a dangerous point here. I think beyond all of that, what we need is a president who can just promote the simple message of a country working together during very difficult times. Um, I, think, I, would, I would say you, unity, but that word has been perverted now by other people. And But we really do need that. And we, we need to be able to say hello to our neighbors, you know, who are in red states and Work together as the United States because if we don't, you know, we won't be able to stop this this turmoil between us. But the move, but the, but but if you were to take anything away from Lincoln, uh, the two thousand and six, I believe, film, or it could be two. No, 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 two thousand twelve film. I remember now. I was in okay Los Angeles at the time. Uh, the two thousand twelve film. What what would it be? Well, I think that, you know, we've talked about quite a bit of it now, that there are certain overarching problems in the country that have never been put to rest, that now that you're in, like, the decade of the 2020s, it's time to take these things on, and hopefully that your generation and those that are coming after you 
we'll be able to help to rectify some of these things so the country can move forward as a whole um, uh, as well as it can because it's a country of phenomenal potential but you know you have to have your act together to be able to do it yeah and uh, there's some other stuff i wish i could talk about the cinematography it just looks at from yamish kaminsky looks absolutely fantastic how it almost looks like you're looking at a painting from that century the way the the colors are vibrant the way the lens flares on the candle but not in a jj abrams way but in a sort of uh uh, sort of sort of like an oil painting way and then of course you have the production design where they actually uh, filmed some of that in Virginia in the old House of Representatives I believe and they have like a period of time where no one's there that they use that imagery Wow yeah there, there's a lot of keen attention there's a lot of keen attention to detail that stands out in that film. But uh, fortunately, we don't have the time to talk about that. Thank you, Mom, for coming on. Uh, I'll go back to my cage of an apartment <laughs> soon, so then I'll be Zooming uh, my usual uh, co-hosts again. Uh, but thank you for oh, you're coming welcome. on. No, I enjoyed this. This was fun. Yep. Uh, Very interesting, too. Yeah. You could catch Good subject matter. Well, thank you. Uh, you can catch me at ypareviews.com. Thank you, and you'll probably agree. Shall we stop this bleeding? Bleeding.